On the show tonight, I have one of my brothers from another mother, a gentleman who has served the country, and he's an author. And I have so much to say about this guy, and we'll, we'll just get to all that. And I also have a photographer who I met at a local New York event, and we've become friends, and we will be weighing in on the topics of today. We are NYC Talking, the realest lifestyle blog ever, with your host, Angel Rodriguez. Please follow Angel R. Talk on Twitter and Instagram. Please like NYC Talking on Facebook, www.nyctalking.com. Sammy, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, my good man? Well, uh, I'm from the South Bronx, born and raised uh, in Bronx Lebanon Hospital right there in uh, the Grand Concourse in uh, Mount Eden. Um, grew up my whole life there. I used to work for uh, D'Agostino Supermarket, which I think a lot of people know. Um, downtown Manhattan. You hired, you hired me there once, remember? I, I did. I did, yes. It was a good job in New York. I miss New York City a lot. And um, at 22, I joined the military, and I was uh, stationed overseas in Europe. And uh, I spent six years in the United Kingdom, or England, for, for most people to know. And then uh, upon returning, I moved uh, to Pennsylvania, where uh, I've been ever since, and a uh, police officer for a while. And um, and I also have been a deputy coroner uh, where I did death investigations. Um, college graduate, I'm pretty much a typical, you know, atypical for, I guess, for our neighborhood. But um, <laughs> I, I did a lot uh, of stuff. So I'm a polygraph examiner. Um, so I spend a lot of time interviewing people and talking to people. And You're also an author. Is that right? I am an author, yeah. I wrote, uh, I wrote a book called Before You Date Him, Investigate Him. It was something... Uh, I was a member of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, where my job was to find child pornographers on the Internet, people who are actively possessing and sharing child pornography. And uh, what my job was ultimately was to track them down and then serve search warrants on their house and arrest them. Um, what I found, though, is through my investigations and just being aware of the Internet and using it a lot, that there's a lot of people out there who aren't aware uh, of the dangers of the Internet. Um, the biggest one I found was dating communities. I couldn't tell you how many reports I've taken from women, um, a few from men, where they've met people through online dating services, and um, there was some bad circumstances. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't know that there's resources out there where you can verify a guy who he is. You can check to see if he has a criminal history. Um, because it is open to the public, and unfortunately, a lot of the women that I was uh, taking reports from were unaware that this gentleman had a domestic violence background, and uh, you know began you know began stalking them, harassing them through the internet. And so, an idea with uh, a buddy of mine, Louis Savelli, who's a retired NYPD detective sergeant, um, we came up with the idea of coming up with this book to make people aware of the dangers of the internet, uh, specifically dating. And also to show the sources of information online that you can find about somebody. And, I mean, it's, it's, you can find it, you can use it for just about anything. Um, you know, I have a daughter now, and uh, so, you know, hopefully I can teach her what I learned so she can protect herself. But, you know, for anybody that has a wife or, or a daughter or any children in general, you know, they're going to be meeting people online more than we did when we grew up. And, you know, you have to be aware that, you know, when it comes down, if it sounds too good to be true, you know, you want to trust but verify. 
And uh, that's what we did. We came up with this book with this idea to hopefully do good and obviously help people out there, you know, not become victims of misinformation and uh, obviously of predators online. And you also, um, you travel and you train officers um, throughout the world as well, right? And that's also part of uh, what you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, through uh, Louis Savelli, like I said, he's a detective sergeant, retired from NYPD. He was one of the head guys who created the gang task force in New York. He has a private business, and I've been working for him uh, where we go around the country training police officers, both uh, actually not just police officers, federal agents as well. I've taught FBI, ISDHS agents, state police and local police on uh, everything from homicide, crime scene investigations to Internet investigations. Um, I also traveled to Jamaica where myself and uh, nine other officers from the United States went down as part of a U.S. delegation to teach homicide and crime scene investigation to the Jamaican constabulary detectives. Um, if you aren't familiar with Jamaica, Jamaica has about 1,600 homicides a year. They, they're probably the most experienced uh, detectives that you're ever going to meet um, with regard to homicide investigation, even more so than the largest police force in the U.S., which is NYPD. Um, Jamaica has a lot of drug problems. Obviously, there's some economical issues, but the homicide rate is astronomical amongst the community. So we went out there to help them, hopefully pass on some knowledge of some of the lessons that we learned. And obviously, we came from them with a bunch of lessons that obviously they could teach us because they see death more often than we do. And uh, so we, it was an information sharing type event. We were there for six weeks. Uh, we met with the Jamaican commissioner, police commissioner, with the Ministry of Intelligence, a bunch of people down there and shared ideas and shared information. As a matter of fact, I still keep contact with a lot of Jamaican detectives. And uh, when they come to the U.S., I normally meet up with them for a cup of coffee and we talk. Um, you know, and, and pretty much uh, it's a great opportunity. You see a lot of things. You learn a lot of things from different police departments throughout the U.S. We don't always do it the same. Um, you know, as far as training, uh, money, you know, every agency is different. So one of the things that we do is we, we go from place to place providing, uh, you know, some training to people that wouldn't otherwise get it or couldn't afford it. Outstanding. All this, all this experience, man, <laughs> all this experience. So you see, you bring with you the wealth of knowledge that comes from growing up in the South Bronx, which gives us this, what, what I like to call street smarts. You know, with these street marks, street smarts to survive and and just cope with day to day life. And in addition to that, you have all this, you know, professional law enforcement experience from all these various um, organizations and agencies. So you will be a great person to talk to about the topics we'll be discussing tonight. Um, Katerina, are you there, my lady? I'm still here. I'm kind of just wowed by. All that experience. I know. It's so <laughs> impressive, right? It's so, like, I'm, so, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here, and though I'm hosting the show, I feel like I'm just listening to the show because this guy oh, is, is so – I'm so impressed. I'm and, like, and, I'm trying to count down my fingers, and I can't. <laughs> Katarina, tell us, tell us about, about what you do. Um. Well, 
it's not as good as Sam over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I should have. I, I was gonna do the ladies first thing, but I was, I was, I haven't talked to Sammy in so long. I was so excited, you know. So I apologize for that. For my, I didn't know for my, that's my fine. Slip on chivalry there, but um, please go ahead. It's fine. All I have to say is, Sam, if I ever meet you, I have to bow down to you. Oh, boy. No, I don't just, think so. Just give him a hug. He'll take a uh, hug. I give you a hug. Do the fake bowing, like, with my arms. Like, wow. Um, my name's Katarina. I'm college graduate of Iona College, so shout out to the Gales. Um, sorry, I'm super discouraged now. Thank them. <laughs> oh, come right. on. Come on. We've, we've got, we've got, like, decades on you. You know what I'm saying? You know, so you've got plenty of time to, uh, to catch up when you when you reach our age, okay? And all that comes with that. <laughs> all right, we'll talk, we'll talk about that in, like, 20 years from now, even though I'm going to still lie if I'm 22. Um, you, so, you, you do uh, photography, right? I am a photographer. I am in public relations. I work with Angelique Lozada, who is a personal marketing coach. She considers me her photo media specialist because wherever she does her public relations, I'm always writing up articles and doing press releases and taking photos of each event she goes to. Um, outside of that, I'm a coordinator for the public relations section of the Artist for Creative Theater. Uh, and I'm also starting up my own online publication in which Angel's actually helping me out with, which will be coming out after the new year. All right. So, Sammy. Yeah. My good man. You grew up in the same neighborhood as I did, right? So we're gonna yeah. uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump into into the uh, into the haps into what's happening right now. You you your story and and I've always told you this as a friend is fascinating because you you for any challenge that I may have had experience growing up, you experienced it like tenfold right you were already as a grown man at 14 15 years old with your own apartment right i remember you had your own place you were pretty much raising your brother i mean for a 15 year old to be under those circumstances and pull out ahead i mean that's 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 just amazing i mean you you want to you want to weigh in on that? Well, I mean, you're, you're, I, I, I it's your about story, this. so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to go into any details that you may not want to share. So I want to let you run with that aspect of it. You know what I'm no, saying? No, I, I have no problem with it because I think it's, it's, it's absolutely pertinent to what's going on today. Because I think there's a lot of lack of self, uh, self awareness. A lot of it is, you know, uh, taking personal responsibility, and I say that because. Um, here's my story in, in a nutshell, and I'm not going to belabor you with, with a lot, but I, I grew up as a Puerto Rican kid in the South Bronx. You know, I am the lightest kid in my family. They call me the white boy of my family because I am lighter than everybody else. But ultimately, I'm Puerto Rican. I speak Spanish, grew up in the South Bronx. My, I've never met my biological father. You know, and I, I always tell people with that story. It's a typical story for, for at least right. families that I've known coming from my neighborhood. We never knew who our fathers were. Uh, my mom died when, when I was nine years old from AIDS during the AIDS epidemic. And I pretty much grew up with family members throughout the years, you know, staying with one no more than a year or two years, maybe four years the most. 
Um, I grew up on welfare. I grew up with food stamps. Um, I grew up in projects. As a matter of fact, uh, Soundview Projects is where I, I stood some of my time. And, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, a rough childhood growing up. I, I used to fight a lot. I used to get into a lot of problems, you know, in the street. I was patted down by NYPD. Uh, when stop and frisk wasn't a moniker that was used, it was just normal police tactics. And, you know, I've been thrown against streetcars and corners and buildings, you know, by police officers a lot for just being on the corner. And it didn't matter that I lived in the building I was standing in front of. That was just the tactics it was. And I hated the police for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I've been pulled over on traffic stops and told I did something when I know for a fact I didn't. Um, you know, where, where, you know, I have my wife and my kid at the time, you know, in my car and they accused me in New York of running a stop sign telling me my car is a frequently stolen car after I denied obviously running a stop sign and then changing it up to, you know, my car is frequently a frequent stolen item, which is why they stopped me. So it wasn't because of the stop. Um, the you stop fit sign. The description too. Yeah, yeah, you fit the description, and 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 Your you know, car I, and you fit the description. Both of you yeah. fit the description. I mean, I I grew up I grew up in the South Bronx. I mean, I've been through fights. I had a lot of stuff back when I was growing up. We had Zulu Nation, Latin Kings, Nietas. The city was jumping with gangs. Um, we had the crack, we had the crack epidemic that was going on. My aunt was a, a crack addict. Um, before, you know, it was in fashion. I've had uncles who died of heroin overdoses. So, you know, I grew up in an environment that, according to everybody else, I shouldn't have made it. One thing that drew me or actually cleaned me up or my life was the fact that I ran away from home and I wound up getting become the ward of a state. And I was put in a group home. I was actually in Far Rockaway, Queens, uh, St. John's Homes for Boys, if anybody knows where that is. It's 110 Beach Street. Far Rock in Rockaway, New York, and I was in an all boys group home, and uh, I used I was fighting, and um, my brother can attest. We, you know, you'd look at me wrong. I was fighting you, and uh, one day the father, the priest, one of the priests, because it was a Catholic-run institution, told me, "If you keep on your this path, you're never going to make it out of here until you're 21." And at the time, I was only 12, and uh, when he told me that, I realized, you know, I was drinking. Uh, I actually drank alcohol. I used to drink Crazy Horse and St. Ives when that was back at, then. At 12. At 12. And, uh, you know, I got into some trouble. And um, ultimately, you know, when the father told me that and he, he took me under his wing, he actually did not let me hang out with everybody else in the home. He made me work in the warehouse cleaning up donations that were brought in. I realized that this wasn't for me and I don't want to be here for the rest, you know, for the next eight years, nine years. Locked up in a, it, it was a prison type setting, you know, barbed wire fences. We we only were allowed to go from one yard to another yard, which is only for school purposes. And uh, right. I realized most, most 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 folks may not know what group homes are like here in New York, but like you said, it's pretty much like you're in prison. You're, yeah, you're it wasn't Spartford. You're, you're scrapping uh, to survive, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it wasn't a Spartford. And anybody knows Spartford is out in Brooklyn. That's like prison, prison, where you're treated in a militaristic type. You know, it was bad. It was like being on Rikers Island in Spartford. And a lot of guys can talk about it. I was never in that. I was in a more, uh, a better facility, but it was still a facility nonetheless. I wasn't with family. 
there was 10 groups of kids in a, an apartment and we had a counselor that would stay with us 24 seven to watch us, to make sure. And there was kids from all over the city, from every borough that were either given away trouble, you know, on, you know, didn't have families, were orphans, that kind of thing. And so, you know, we grew up in that environment and ultimately, you know, when I, when that priest gave me that realization or that reality check that for the next nine years, I could never, you know, be with my family, be locked up in here because of my behavior. I don't know, something clicked and I decided that this wasn't for me. And then my stepfather got me out of the group home and, uh, at age, uh, 13, you know, we were there for about a year until my, my stepfather, my brother's father got me out. And then from then on, you know, due to circumstances, you know, he kind of went his own way. And I used to pay for an apartment with my mom's survivor's check when she died. Uh, she used to get so we used to get a survivor's benefit check, which was a $300 check that me and my brother got because of her death. It was a death benefit. So I would take that check and combine them and pay the rent. And then I worked part time and would buy food and everything with the rest of the money and um, never really had a childhood. And, and I just moved on and, and, you know, got work and I had some good people who, you know, uh, work, I worked for who looked at me and saw potential and gave me opportunities that I would never have. And, you know, then the rest is history. You know, I, today I sit before you a, a master's degree holding, you know, with a family of my own and, you know, a distinguished career in the military and police and, um, if people knew my life history and I don't tell everybody and my probably now, you know, the, your audience knows, but I mean, I, I was, I would have been written off the narrative that I grew up under. I would have been written off and it, and I would have been, it would have been okay. You know, uh, people would have looked at it and go, huh, based on the way he grew up, we understand why he acts the way he does. Um, but I don't think that's, that's right. Um, eventually you have to take responsibility for yourself and your actions and I think it took a little while and I sacrificed my childhood, obviously, but, you know, I think it makes me who I am today. I think my past history makes me better, a better police officer than most. Um, and obviously I can talk to, you know, a litany of, of examples of where I've dealt with kids and families here in Pennsylvania that are from New York and tell them, hey, I know. I know what it's like because most think you don't. They just look at the uniform and badge. I, I can't tell you that people cannot tell faces no matter, um, you know, plain clothes they, they, or in they uniform. Can't, they can't read the story. <laughs> yeah, know. well, we're all the same. We're all badging guns. And I could walk up to somebody who I had a two-hour conversation out of uniform and they won't recognize me. You know why? Because all they saw was the badge and the uniform. They didn't see the human behind that uniform. And we all have stories. Um so, I mean, that's that's pretty much it, and I, I probably took up too much time, but <laughs> well, this, it gives it's going to give perspective, right? Um, it gives perspective into what we're talking about, Katarina. Yes, sir. You you mentioned before, um, moments before the show started, um, that you take you somewhat take offense to how. Some individuals are referring to the protesters as criminals. What are your thoughts on that whole situation at the moment? Would I call them criminals? No, because they're all outraged by what's going on. Do you blame them for being upset? It's legitimate. You have a right. This country, we have a right to protest, to go out in the street and to, to proclaim our you know, uh, aggravation with the criminal justice system, with the people in charge, with the way that this incident was handled. 
It's totally different than to go out and commit intentional acts of vandalism. Those businesses are actual businesses that pay the taxes, that pay for the utilities and the public works and everything for that community that those people are vandalizing. So what they're doing is putting people who pay taxes to that community, they're putting them out of business. They're damaging them. And yes, the insurance is going to cost them. It's going to cover a lot of the damage and what's going to happen. Premiums are going to go up. There's a, there's a litany of cause and effect here that people are not looking at. Not guilty. It's not not guilty. Let me explain to you how this process works. Grand jury is a, it's a special jury that's convened by a district attorney in the areas that they're at. There, there's 12 jurors and there's alternates that come in. They're actually selected to review. They do cold cases. Most times grand juries are brought in for cases where um, they're very sensitive, high profile cases, or, you know, they, they go cold cases where they're looking at cases from 20 years ago and DNA evidence is in. One of us in this, one, me, Angel, or Katarina, we, we, either one of us can get a subpoena in the mail saying you have been selected for jury duty. And you can be on a grand jury one day. And you, you're sworn to secrecy. You're not allowed to talk to anybody. You're not allowed to talk about the proceedings and testimony in the grand jury proceedings. And, um, you know, there's a process to it. It's actually a very, that's a, it's an old process that we've had in place for centuries. Okay. For the last 200 years, that process has been in place. And the purpose of that is, is a grand jury allows you to do certain things against the defendant, believe it or not. It allows the prosecution more leeway to get more evidence that they wouldn't otherwise get in another way. Um, a grand jury subpoena. You can't, you can't even argue that it was. The, the jury the, – the grand jury already existed, so whatever their beliefs are going to be are already there. Correct. It's the same as a trial. The difference between is is that this this level or this jury, their responsibility is just to determine if there's what's called prima facie, probable cause to charge somebody with the, with the, with the crime. Now, I'm going to give you – there's a case, 1989 case, that's going to set this whole tone of It's called Graham versus Connor. And I, I, I suggest you and the audience read Graham versus Connor with regard to the Supreme Court and what they said about use of force and officers, how that the officer will not be judged by 2020 hindsight, meaning we're not going to look after the fact and say this is what he could have done. You know, I always equate this to the South Park episode with Captain Hindsight when he would just appear and, and give everybody what could have happened or what should have happened. The Supreme Court, the largest court, the top court of the land has already said we will never judge a police officer on 2020 hindsight. We will judge by the objective reasonableness at the time and based and with the circumstances that the officer was facing at the time. Under that case, under that precedent that was set back in 1989 and has been upheld for years, that case itself is that it's not 2020 hindsight. It's not, well, they could have shot him in the foot or shot him in the arm or tased him in the back. No, it's based on what that officer was facing at the time he was facing it and, and what the standards were. Everybody thinks they know what a grand jury is, and everybody says We're gonna, we should have a trial. You know what happens in a trial? The trial happens is the defense attorney convolutes everything. He gets to throw in little things and confuse the situation, and the facts don't get heard. The grand jury, without anybody convoluting it, without anybody objecting, without people putting in and, and preventing evidence for being admitted. Everything was admitted. So if anything, the grand jury process was even fairer and were more likely to get the officer indicted because the officer 
believe it or not, when he testified before the grand jury, testified without counsel. You're not allowed to have an attorney before the grand jury when you testify. So he had to give his response, and the 12 jurors had an opportunity to cross-examine him without an attorney, without the advice of counsel. And that shows you how far that this jury went to make their decision. Because in court, that will not happen. You don't have to testify as a defendant in court. You can object when a witness comes on stand. You can destroy somebody's credibility on the stand. An officer-involved shooting is not something that always goes to a grand jury. Sometimes that's just dealt with inside the department with the district attorney looking at it. It doesn't necessarily go to the grand jury on most cases. The bottom line is, you know, I give this back to you. People always say, well, why was he shot 10 times? The only thing I can relate to you is I'll ask you a question. Katerina, have you ever been shot? Yeah, but I care not to talk about that. Okay. I've never been shot, and I don't think you've ever been shot. But if you've ever been in a situation, you know, I revert back to my training videos. It's one of the earliest videos I've ever seen. I was down at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in 2005. We were shown a video of a deputy down in the south who was involved in a fight with a guy in a house. That deputy was in a brawl with this guy. It was a domestic. He was in a brawl with him, and he actually shot the guy 10 times. Well, people go, why did you shoot him 10 times? Well, one thing is that without seeing the video, you think, oh, my God, 10 times. Throughout the course of the fight, the guy was shot 10 times, meaning that every time he shot him, the guy kept attacking him, kept going at him, kept fighting him, regardless of how many times this officer shot him. He actually did not collapse the entire – and I watched the video because you could see the video of them fighting because he had a body camera, and you could see them fighting in the apartment. And the guy was shot 10 total times and was still fighting the officer as if he was never shot. And so this idea that people just drop like Call of Duty or Black – you know, Battlefield 4 or all these video games that people – you shoot them once and they drop, you know, because one bullet supposedly goes through people and drops is false. Bullets don't just go in and stop you. You know, depending on where the bullet hits you on the body, it can go through and through and not even affect you. Ask military veterans who've been to war. Um, or depending on where it's hit, the vital organ will survive long enough that you can still fight. The other factor that people fail to recognize here is the fight-or-flight syndrome, this autonomic nervous system, and I speak about this in my polygraph examinations because that's how polygraph works based on your autonomic nervous system. Bottom line is when you're in a fight-flight-or-freeze situation, you're going to do whatever it is your body intends for you to do. If you're in a fight situation, you're going to have adrenaline running through your body, that will keep you going as a survival mechanism. So I'll give an example, Faces of Death. Another example, if you ever watched that video series, Angel, you remember Faces of Death from back in the day? I, I do recall. Do you remember the guy who jumped off the building, landed on the sidewalk, got up and ran 20 feet? All right, mm -hmm. there's a couple of videos of guys who jumped off, who jumped off buildings, got up because of the adrenaline rush and ran 20 feet, 30 feet. And they just fell off of six-story building. Ultimately, this idea that people drop with one bullet is false, okay? And, and, and you know, I just wanted to address that because this this idea. Everybody focuses on the 10 shots, 10 shots. And they weren't 10 so shots in succession. They're also, it, you know, it depends on where he shot them, whether or not those shots were impactful, okay? Whether or not they were stopping shots, 
And so, you know, you got to look at the entire picture. There's a lot of people who have no knowledge of this stuff who are just believing what they read on the Internet. And the fact is, is there's more here than what's being relayed. I've actually seen in when I was in high school in Dodge, there was a fight. Two gentlemen were fighting. One of them pulled a gun, shot the guy. The guy looked where he was hit. And he continued fighting. He came at the guy. He still punched him and kept punching him. And the guy shot him again. Pop! And the guy kept hitting him. The guy didn't drop. I was looking out the window from the school. I was looking out the window, and the guy did not drop. He just kept hitting him. Now I don't know if he ended up dying from his, you know, from his injuries later on. But for that period in time, pop! He shot him. I saw this. I was looking out the window. Shot him. And first he hit him in the shoulder. The guy looked at his shoulder, and and just kept punching him. Then he shot him again, and he kept punching him. And, I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the police showed up and broke it up and tackled everybody. So I don't know the end result. But I saw with my own eyes someone get get hit um, and continue fighting. I've seen, um I've seen other methods deployed, pepper spray. I, I saw – I recently posted a video of a, a fight between an officer and a – and a gentleman in the subway, and the guy, the officer pepper sprayed him, and the guy kept coming at him, attacking him, and he was wrestling with him on the floor, and they're hustling, and they're, you, as as a as a person that's carrying a firearm, you can't get into a wrestling match. What happens Correct. if I knock you out and I take your weapon? I mean, I may get I may get the best of you. And that's the you point understand? is that that's the point that people have to understand is that. There's always, regardless of who, there's always one gun in every encounter with the police. There's always one gun, and that's the police officers. So if there's a situation where that police officer becomes incapacitated, that gun is no longer on that police officer. Somebody else can take it. And now that becomes a deadly force situation. An officer can't get into a fist fight with somebody, and most people forget that, is that we are not out there to get in a full-on fist fight with somebody because we have to think about the tools on our belt, the gun on our side, and if we get the boxer's chance, which is somebody punches you and gets the best of you, that gun is no longer on you. That person can kill you and then start shooting anybody else in the area. So, you know, the mindset of an officer is totally different. It's not a one-on-one fight between two non-armed individuals. It's I got to restrain this guy, but restrain him enough to a point where I prevent him from taking my gun and killing me. And that's, that's what it, or other, (laughs) well, killing me or others. Exactly. I mean, most times when they're fighting an officer is for that officer, Um, you know, and, and so those are the circumstances that we're talking about. Let me give you a smaller background about myself. I worked in Montana hospital from the ages of, 14 as a volunteer till the age of 17 where I was actually working there for about a year. My mother works there up to this day. I've grown up around police officers in which I've seen them personally also screw up. And at the same time, we don't see the NYPD and the commissioners making these changes. In my opinion, why don't they do a better screening of these people? I understand they need police officers, but to what extent are you going to be taking people on? Maybe the police test needs to be examined, and that's that's maybe that's, that's, that's a um, higher qualification. That's 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 also on a higher level too, guys. I hate to cut you guys up. Um, I want you guys to uh, 
share your, your social media, Katerina, if people want to connect with you? How, how will they find you? You can find me on my personal Facebook, Katerina Kufalis, or Instagram, KDK underscore photography XO. Sammy? I, I don't have one anymore, but um, the book can be purchased on Amazon. You can either look it up by my name or through the name of the book, which is Before You Date Him, Investigate Him. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm anybody had any questions, I mean, I gladly answer you. They know they could reach you and you could reach me. I mean, I have no problems with it. I, I you know, I can't speak to NYPD because uh, I don't work for NYPD, but you know, I, I I know there's three sides to every story that, you know, and, and that's one things people got to keep in mind. But that's it. Um, and arguments. I'm sorry? And arguments. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy topic to talk about. And um, I really wish we had more time. But um, Sammy, Katrina, thank you guys so much for uh for joining me this was this was really cool very informative katarina i know we talk a lot <laughs> so you know we well, we we we're, we're a lot we we talk a lot but i'm going to bring you back i want to bring you back so we can discuss the other topics that we we had planned to talk about thank you guys for coming on and uh thank you very much everybody bye guys www.nyctalking.com thanks for listening